0: All right, so I'm really glad to be with you guys as we uh, are continuing in our series on Philippians. Again, my name is Jordan Rice. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Renaissance. One of the things I love most in life is to travel. Uh, My wife and I, it's probably our favorite pastime, to to go somewhere to a new city, to experience the sights, to eat new food. Uh, But the best thing about travel is when you get to travel and go to a new city and you're there with someone that's actually from there. Like it's one thing to go on Google and to go on TripAdvisor and to look at the places you have to see, uh, but it's another thing altogether, uh, if you go to a new city and you're there with someone that actually knows their way around that city like the back of their hand, and they can take you away from the tourist traps and they can take you to the good, authentic, local spots to hang out. A few years ago, I got the chance to go to Ireland uh, and I was all over Ireland, both uh, the south, the, the Republic of Ireland, and also in Belfast. And it's one of my favorite trips that I've ever taken on my life. in my life. Uh, we were in Belfast, and we were being guided around the city with a guy that was born and raised in Belfast and had experienced years and years and years of Belfast uh, as, a, as a resident. Now, you guys may have heard about some of the tensions in Ireland uh, between the English Protestants and the Irish Catholics, uh, and there was so much uh, violence and bloodshed for years and years and years. And when we got to Belfast, we had heard about a lot of stories. I had read some stuff in books. But now I was with an Irish Catholic dude that used to be in the IRA. The IRA was the Irish Republican Army. And uh, he was showing me around the other side of the coin. He said, hey, this is what the news says. But this is what was really going on over here when we and my boys got arrested And he was taking us in to different pubs throughout uh, Ireland and Belfast. And I think I was the only black person in the country. So when I walked into a different pub, they would all stop and look at me. I'm like, yo, I'm with him, man. I just, I'm with him. So please. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, My wife gets jealous because she wasn't able to go. And she's like, all right, all right. I heard so much about your little trip to Ireland with your best friend, Kieran, and all the different things he showed you, congratulations. Uh, But it was a life-changing trip. Now, wouldn't it have been ridiculous if I got to Belfast and I said, hey, Kieran, I know you're from here, I know you've lived here for decades, I got this. I googled some stuff about Belfast. I'm going to take myself around, no thank you on, on your help. Uh, How much would I have been missing out on if I didn't take advice from someone who had been there and knew that city like the back of his hand? Now, I'm really excited about this series we're in on Philippians, Uh, and it's written by a man named Paul, and and Paul was a guy who started a bunch of churches all throughout uh, the Middle East and in Europe, and he writes a letter to this church in Philippi, and he is writing to them about a subject called joy. Joy. Now, it's really interesting that Paul is writing about joy because Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell that as he pens these words, he has a chain around him and he's writing to a group of people who are free about what it looks like to experience joy. And he's, a, he's in a deep, dark, uh, nasty dungeon chained to a guard and this man is, is going to teach us how to navigate throughout the subject of joy. Now, I think it's such a paradox that the one who is coming to us to tell us about joy is a guy that has found joy, that has cultivated joy, and that has maintained joy in a prison. His circumstances were terrible. His future was uncertain. Uh, He didn't know if he was going to be executed coming up. And all of his comforts were removed from him. And yet, he is the one that's writing to us about joy. Now, if there's anyone that I would want to trust to navigate us around the conversation of joy, it's the guy that has found joy in prison. Now, wouldn't it be really terrible if we look at these words that Paul is writing to us and we say, you know what, I don't want to follow that. Uh, even, though, even if it doesn't make total sense to us, I think it would be in our best interest to just say, listen, if this guy could find joy in prison, then maybe he knows a little bit better about the topic Than I do, even if I don't understand or agree with what he's saying from the outset. And it would be a a crime if you and I were to not take his words uh, pretty heavily and to lean into what he's telling us about joy. Now, this is why he writes a letter. Uh, We see it in verse 25 of the first chapter. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is why this letter was written so that you would have progress in the faith, so that you wouldn't just be stuck here wherever your here is forever. That if you're new to church, that there's a next step for you to take. And if you've been around for forever, there's a next step for you to take. And it wouldn't just be here that you plateau, but you and I would progress. And the second reason Paul writes this letter is so that you and I would have joy, real joy. Now, let me define joy real quick, because a lot of times when uh, you hear the word joy, you're thinking about coming to America when he's like, somebody say joy. joy. We'll do that again. Y'all, that was weak. <laughs> somebody say joy. joy. There we go. Hey, so coming to America, they're screaming out joy and everybody's feeling good. And you're like, hey, I don't know if that's really something that's going to impact my life in a, in a, in a deep way. Uh, by joy, we mean something much better and bigger then some random exclamation. It's something much bigger and better than even happiness, uh, which comes and goes and sometimes comes back again. Uh, Every year this happens to me, the first day of NFL season. I'm sitting on my couch in my Jets jersey. I got some nachos going. It's a good day. I have hope. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm watching the Jets play the first game, and I'm very happy. Six to seven minutes into the game, I'm standing on my couch, yelling at the TV, and I'm absolutely miserable because, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, the Jets season is done like in 10 minutes of the first game of the season. I was talking to a friend, and uh, he helped me realize why I don't make jokes about the Jets often. It's because the Jets are a joke, and you can't make a joke about a team that is a joke. So (laughs) it's painful. It's painful. I'm a Jets fan, so I'm allowed to say that. Happiness comes and goes just like that and sometimes the Jets surprise me and they actually win And then I get happy all over uh, uh, again when Scripture talks to us about joy It's not talking about happiness that comes and goes uh, Based on how your favorite sports team is doing. It's not something that comes and goes based on how your hair turned out in the humidity It's not something that comes and goes Uh, I have a lot of experience with that by the way and uh, It's something that is a deep internal thing that changes the way you uh, experience the outside world. Uh, We were having a meeting this week, and Aswan said something that was really profound. He says, uh, these spiritual things that we're talking about, they are uh, deep internal paradigms that change the way we experience the outside world. So it's something that's happening to you deeply inside that affects and changes the way you experience everything outside. In a sense, joy is independent of what's going on around you. In a sense, to have joy is to not necessarily have a change in your circumstances. And this is what Paul is getting at here uh, in this letter. Now, one quick thing about joy that we have to get to. um, Joy, not only is it much bigger and better than happiness, uh, it's a settled state of confidence and hope. It's a settled state of confidence and hope. Now, when something is settled, everything else around it could be shaking and moving around but that thing that is settled stays in the same place over and over and over again and to say you have joy it's this settled state that when the winds blow around you it's an anchor that locks you into confidence and hope we mentioned this last week but it's really important to mention it again that uh, joy doesn't dismiss your current realities or whatever's going on in your life to have joy is not to pretend like it's all good when it's not to have joy is not to pretend like you're not sad about something. It's not to put on a smiley face and to forget about the realities of your life. Uh, the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Now, I know this to be true about myself sometimes, and, and I would imagine this is true for some of you, that even right now, some of you have come into this room And there's a situation or a number of situations that you have just learned to push down as hard as you can. you're just going to push it down and try your best to forget about it because deep down inside, you really don't think that there's any hope. You really don't think that there's any way forward in, in your life. And what you need is more joy. You need to have a settled state of confidence and hope. So what does our tour guide, Paul, tell us to do uh, let me guys, let me read you guys a portion of scripture from this letter in Philippians. It starts in verse 12. He says, "Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and this is him talking about being in jail, uh, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord." and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient joy so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain here's what Paul is getting at. He's facing a terrible trial. Uh, I mentioned that Paul literally is in a place where he doesn't know if he's going to be executed. Uh, It was a crime to stir up the people uh, in some ways. And Paul is going around to all these synagogues preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's starting to start, you're starting to see some national and civil unrest in the people all because this dude, Paul, won't stop talking about Jesus. And the powers that be want to quiet him down, so they throw him uh, in jail. And when he's in jail, every single day, Paul is chained. Every single hour of his day, he's chained to the Praetorian Guard. Now, the Praetorian Guard were the Roman soldiers that, uh, that Paul really didn't have any communication with. Whenever Paul would come to a town, he would go into the synagogue and talk to Jews about Jesus. But now, you have the world's most gifted evangelist, chained for eight hours to a Roman guard and he can't go anywhere even if he wanted to. And here's what Paul is getting at. I would have never in 20 million years written it up like this for my life. But now on the other side of it, I see that God was doing something all along. And you know what? This actually turned out for good. Even though I would have doubted a thousand percent that anything good could happen to me because I'm in chains, man, God was actually working the whole time. Now, here's what Paul is getting at in this this text of scripture, that God was with him and God was working for him despite what was going on around him. And you want to know the number one way you and I could have more confidence and more hope is if you and I would believe and take to heart that God is with us and that God is for us despite what is going on around us. And that's most certainly not uh, an easy thing to do. And this is what Paul knew about Jesus that actually allowed him to have this joy, this settled uh, confidence and hope is because he knew. He's telling us firsthand, brothers and sisters, listen. And I imagine that Paul was probably even a little bit shocked as he was writing this. Like, yo, brothers and sisters, check this out. What I thought was really, really bad actually turned out for my good. And Paul talks about it actually served to advance the gospel. Now, Paul had no way into the Roman guard, but now he's starting to see all of these Roman guards converted, and his whole new path of Christianity exploding in ways that he would have never in 20 million years uh, uh, thought about on his own, and it all happened because God was working with him, uh, God was working in him and for him, despite all the craziness he saw around him. Now, in Christian theological circles, they call this sovereignty, Uh, It's a big word, and, and basically all sovereignty means is that God is in control. Sovereignty just means that. God is in control. When you're not in control, God is in control. When you don't know what's going on, God is in control. When you think you know what's going on, God is still in control. And Paul is pleading to this church for them to have joy, and he wants them to know that, listen, if you're in a situation, if you're going to face a situation where it seems like God is not there, where it seems like God is not with you, where it seems like God is asleep, uh, uh, in those moments to remember that God can take uh, situations that we would have never thought would be good and turn them into something good. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary on uh, this passage of scripture from the 1600s. And uh, in the commentary, he talks about basically what Paul is saying is that God is the great alchemist. In the 1600s, in in the Middle Ages, there were these scientists that claimed that they could turn lead into gold. That they can just take a big chunk of heavy lead and turn it into gold. Something that was worthless, and they could turn it into something that was precious. And obviously, nobody ever learned how to do that. But what he's basically saying is this. What Paul is arguing is that God is the ultimate alchemist. He can take a block of lead in your life, and he can turn it into gold. And if you and I were to ever arrive at a place where we have confidence and hoping that God is with us and for us, despite what's going on around us, it's going to come in rooting ourselves, not in what we see what's going on around us, uh, but in that fact that God is sovereign and God is in control, even when the moments that we don't think that God can do anything good in our lives. Now, sovereignty is a big word and an even bigger topic, and it's not an easy one to swallow uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, The fact that God is in control, I'm sure you've heard that, and some people say that at very inopportune times, uh, which makes it even more difficult to wrestle through. Uh, But there's a couple of joy killers, things that will stop us from really experiencing joy in our lives uh, when it comes to the conversation of God being in control. And the first one is us thinking that God's plans have to happen immediately. If you think that God's plans in your life have to happen immediately, that they have to unfold uh, immediately, uh, it's a setup for you and I to experience frustration, anxiety, and disappointment. Uh, Now, one of the things I've done over the years that's been really helpful for me is uh, reading through different stories in the Bible, especially from the Old Testament, and I get the, all of us get the uh, opportunity to see their entire life in a matter of chapters, uh, but their life didn't unfold that quickly for them. And in these stories, you see how God deals with real people in real time. Uh, and one of my favorite stories is the story of Joseph. Um, it's a great example of God's plans taking time to develop. So Joseph has a dream, right? It was all a dream. Joseph was uh, wearing this multicolored robe, and he's, uh, he goes to his brothers and says, Hey, guess what, guys? God told me that one day you're going to bow down to me. Uh, His older brothers, much like my older brother, did not take too kindly to that thought. Uh, And they beat him up and they threw him in a pit. They're going to kill him, actually. And one of his brothers jumped in to save him and says, hey, don't kill him. Let's just sell him off to slavery. Now, Joseph has a dream from God of what's going to happen. And he's immediately sold into slavery. And he bounces around to different places. And eventually, he lands in the home of Potiphar. And Potiphar is basically like a governor in Egypt. And when he's in Potiphar's home, he's actually starting to rise uh, a little bit, and Potiphar likes him. And the Bible says Joseph was a good-looking dude. He was a swaggy guy. And Potiphar's wife started looking at him, and she shot a shot. She tried to holler at Joseph. Um, and Joseph, uh, being a man of integrity, says, man, how could I ever do such a sinful thing against God and to take this dude's wife? So he runs away. Potiphar's wife wasn't too happy about Joseph denying her, so on his way out, she grabs his robe, and when her husband comes home, she's waving it up, and she's saying, hey, your boy Joseph, this dude tried to get at me. Potiphar becomes furious and has Joseph thrown in prison. So Joseph's life goes from slavery to kind of rising a little bit and then crashing down into prison. While he's in prison, is uh, starting to have these dreams that nobody can seem to interpret And he's calling all these different wise men to offer him uh, some hope about what he's dreaming so he can find out what is God saying to him in these moments. And there's a baker that's cooking for Pharaoh. And he says, yo, there's this dude in Rikers that actually knows uh, that he can probably interpret your dream for him. Pharaoh busts him out and he comes and he says, hey, Pharaoh, I have the meaning for your dream. For seven years, we're going to be good. We're going to be eaten. It's going to be all gravy. But in the seven years after that, it's going to be a famine. And nobody's going to have anything, really. And in these first seven years, we need to stack up as much as possible so that in the second seven years, we can uh, save up all the grain and we can distribute it so that lives and, uh, uh, and animals aren't lost in the process. Joseph's dream, uh, his ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream uh serves for his good. And so much so, Joseph is out of prison and he rises up to be Pharaoh's number two in command. And one day his brothers who are struggling in the famine in Israel come to Egypt to, the, to get some grain. And they come and they see Joseph. They don't know who he is just yet. And just as Joseph has dreamed years and years before, they bow down to him. And Joseph was able to save thousands and thousands of lives because of what God had done through him. Now, God gives Joseph a dream, and it took almost 43 years for that dream to come to reality. And I think what Paul is getting at is is this in Scripture. A lot of us prematurely judge the activity in our life. We prematurely judge what God is or isn't doing in our lives as bad, and we don't know. That God is working for us and with us despite what's going on around us. And sometimes, actually a lot of times, if you read the story of Scripture, God's plans do not happen immediately. God could be, right now in your life, holding it all the way down, and you are absolutely miserable about it. And God has a plan. And even though it doesn't happen immediately, doesn't mean that that, that God is not there or that God is not with you or that God is not for you. Now another joy killer that we have in our lives that uh, I would say a lot of people struggle with is dismissing sovereignty, uh, the conversation of sovereignty as a crutch. So like, hey, this is just what Christians say whenever they can't explain something. This is just what Christians say. So if it doesn't fit anything else, let's pull out the junk drawer of God is in control and just dump it in there. Uh, and that way we'll have a, you know, some answer to give people Uh, And I don't think that you and I, uh, especially if you're a Christian, have learned three of the most powerful words in all of the dictionary. If you put them together, it's a fantastic combination. It's this, I don't know. Why did this happen? I don't know. It's a perfectly good answer to say. um, I'm reading this book right now called Born a Crime with Trevor Noah, uh, and he talks about all the times he went to church growing up. He says, you know, in the, in the morning we go to black church, in the afternoon we go to white church, and in the evening we go to mixed church. So they were just in church all day long in South Africa. Uh, and he just talks about how much his mother uh, would just say everything, you know, hey, God wanted that to happen. God wanted this to happen. And you could hear in his words uh, some of the resent, maybe too strong of a word, but some of the lack of faith he had in what his mother was saying just because simply she just blew it off and just said, hey, God wanted that to happen. God is in control. Uh, and she really wasn't thinking critically about her life. She wasn't uh, moved to having to do things in her life. Sovereignty is never uh, an excuse to not move or to not act. As a matter of fact, there's a scripture in Acts 23, where Paul gets a vision from an angel, where the angel says, hey, uh, you're going to appear in front of this, uh, this court. Everybody in your boat is going to be safe. Later on, um, they're in the middle of a storm, and a couple of the people on the boat want to hop off. Paul could have said, hey, God said we're all going to be safe, so they can do whatever they want. He does the opposite. He runs. He says, listen, no, 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 you cannot get off the boat. If you leave this boat, you're going to die. Paul understanding God's sovereignty didn't negate the fact that Paul still knew that he had an obligation. He had a part to play in everything. And I don't want anybody to dismiss the statement that God is in control as just some catch-all phrase that we throw on top of something that excuses us to have action. The opposite is true. But well, what I do think Paul is in Scripture gets at is that um, in our lives, even though uh, we might not understand everything, I would be cautious of dismissing that God uh, is not in control, or I would be cautious of you dismissing uh, sovereignty altogether, uh, because God really does work for us and with us, despite what we see is going on around us. Growing, and the, the last job I had before I was a pastor. Uh, I was a family court attorney. Uh, I went to law school for three years, and I was practicing family law. And uh, my specialty probably was um, juvenile delinquency defense. And all day long, I was actually thinking about this church, which would one day come. And I was saying, man, like, I, I really feel like I'm just wasting my time doing family court. I should be getting like a PhD in Hebrew or something. I should be doing something else. I should be getting really deep because this is just kind of a waste of time. I don't see how in the world this is helping me. All day long, I'm with these young knuckleheads and these, uh, these professionals, and I don't see how this is helping anything at all. When the church was first starting in its Genesis, uh, I had a meeting with Aswan. He's one of the pastors on staff here. And Aswan works with Young Life. Shout out to the Young Life crew in here. And Young Life specializes. He's really ex- excited about that. Young Life specializes in working with young knuckleheads. When I first got to Harlem to get ready to plant a church, I was surrounded by young knuckleheads and young professionals. And I was sitting down one day in disbelief like God for the last six years, when I was in the Bronx Family Court hating my life, you were preparing me for this moment right here. And I would be careful to dismiss prematurely what God is doing in your life, that it doesn't make sense. Because I think if you're being honest, you can look back on your life and you could look back to times where you thought Uh, something had to go a certain way. And now looking back, you're saying, thank the Lord Jesus that it didn't go that way. There's definitely a relationship. You're like, Lord, I thank you (laughs) that you didn't let that one go down. Now, another joy killer um, that exists in our lives that I think um, we can infer from the scripture, uh, a, a reason that you and I don't have a lot of confidence and hope in God in our lives is because we think that God's plans are all about us. Uh, it's probably because so much of this world caters, so much of the the advertisement caters to you, to this making you happy, to you having everything you want. And somehow, even though there's 7 billion people in this world, you think that God's plan has to be all about you. And if it doesn't help you personally, if it doesn't uh, benefit you directly, you don't want any parts of it. Uh, Paul says it in verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He doesn't say what's happened to me has actually served to advance me. He says what's happened to me has actually served to advance God's mission. Now, all throughout Scripture, we see that God's desire is not for a, a person, but for a people. As a matter of fact, in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus in Matthew 6, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, "Blessed are you," he's not saying you uh, individually. He's speaking in the third person plural. So basically, Jesus is saying, "Blessed are y'all." Jesus was from the south, y'all. So he's, <laughs> "Blessed are y'all," not just "Blessed are you." This is what you need to get, but this is the people. This is the family I want to create. And oftentimes. Uh, there's, we hold so tightly to what we want God to do in our very specific life that we miss the fact that God has a mission and it's bigger than us. We miss the fact that God is doing something and it's bigger than just, uh, uh, than just impacting us directly and, and benefiting us personally. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't want to do good things in your life. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for good things to happen in your life. But sometimes the kindest and best thing that God can do from, for you is to rip out some of your selfish ambition and replace it with something much bigger and better than what you could have ever hoped or dreamed for on your own. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow, but the reality uh, is that in, in looking back even on my own life, the times where I've had so much selfish ambition, uh, and this is not like 20 years ago, this is more like 20 minutes ago, Uh, The times I've seen God take away my selfish ambition, I've seen God replace it with something much bigger and better than I ever could have dreamed of my own, mainly because I was thinking too much just about Jordan. And God has much bigger plans than just for you directly. Now, the opposite of that is also true. It's another pit that I don't want anybody to go into. And it's uh, us thinking that God's plans don't include us, that somehow we're just a pawn somehow God doesn't care about us and that God will basically just let us get taken off the chessboard as long as his mission in general is going forward. And God doesn't really care about you. God doesn't really uh, have special attention to you. God doesn't really answer your prayers. Uh, Or the worst fear is that God is not close to me. God is nowhere near me because if he was, he wouldn't be letting uh, this stuff happen. And when we think that God's plans don't include us, uh, I think that's a joy killer that takes away any confidence or hope because we feel like God treats us as dispensable. Now, Scripture does not give us that impression. Uh, In the Gospel, we see that God is with us and that God is for us, uh, despite what is going on around us. There's a, a Scripture that I've quoted before, and we've read it before, and I say it often because it's quite honestly one of the most empowering scriptures in all of the Bible. And it shows us that God's plans absolutely have you in mind. God's plans are absolutely including you. You are not a pawn to be disregarded. You are extremely valuable. And you can tell how valuable something is by how much you paid for it. If you're not going to, if something is not valuable to you, you wouldn't spend a lot of money for it. The scripture comes from Isaiah 53. And it's in this gospel that we see both the value that God has for us and the proximity that Jesus is in with us. And here's what I mean with that. Why would God give us his only begotten son if you're not valuable? Bible says that you have gone astray and God laid on him your iniquity. If you were not immensely and infinitely valuable, then why would God make such a sacrifice? There's not one person in this room that I would trade my son for your life. It's not going to happen. If I got to choose, it's going to be a quick decision. I'm going with him. And I, I can't even think of an option, but if I were to ever sacrifice him for anybody or any group of people, they would be the most valuable and precious people on this planet. And I think what scripture is telling us is this. If you fear that God doesn't value you, you need to take your eyes and put it on the cross. If you fear that God is not with you, and that God is not for you, and that God is not rocking with you and coordinating things on your behalf, despite what it looks around you, you need to look on the cross. Now, oftentimes, I I talk with people, and it's such a struggle to think about, why didn't God just forgive us? Why didn't God just say, yo, I forgive you, it's all good, Uh, you know, good, we're we're good, the the slate is clean. I think it wasn't that easy, because if you're ever around, if you're in close proximity to sick people, it's going to come back on you yourself. If you're in close proximity to sick and hurting people, you're gonna have to absorb that yourself. My son goes to daycare now, and his daycare is like walking into a cesspool of germs. Uh, And He always comes home with um, some stomach bug or runny nose. Uh, And this is the third time, this actually past week, that he's given me a stomach bug, uh, and it's not a good feeling, although you do kinda get to lose weight a little bit, just saying. (laughs) I could have avoided the pain if I wasn't in proximity to him. If I didn't pick him up, if I didn't hold him, if I didn't love him, I would have just let him stay over there, and I myself would not have gotten sick. I myself would not have gotten harmed in the process. This is what the cross tells us, that God sees us hurting, broken, sick people, and instead of staying away from us, he comes to us in the cross. And the cross is a result of what it looks like to love difficult, broken people. If you're struggling to see the proximity of God to you, you need to see the cross. You need to see Jesus on the cross who has absorbed all of our iniquity, all of our pain, and all of our suffering. And it is there that you and I can find this confidence and this hope. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we so often struggle to believe that you're with us and you're working for us, just because of all the stuff that's going on around us. God, remind us that you're the great alchemist and you can turn lead into gold. The lead of disappointment in our life uh, can be turned into something beautiful and you make beautiful, beautiful things. God, we don't have to rely on our own power because you are powerful. And that power is not just available to people in the Old Testament. That power was not just available to the disciples who walked with Jesus, that power is available to us today. It never runs out. It will never lose its power.